Welcome to the Asking Why podcast. I'm your host, Clint Davis. I'm a marriage and family therapist and licensed professional counselor trained in trauma and addiction. The Asking Why podcast is for anyone on a journey of healing and restoration. If you are searching for answers to life's questions and want to learn more about root causes from a psychological and theological mix, this show is for you. In this podcast, myself and a co-host from Clint Davis Counseling and Integrative Wellness will interview guests on a wide range of topics in order to get down to the heart of the problems facing our world and understand why things happen and how to change the world and ourselves for the better. Want to learn more tips and tricks to living a healthy lifestyle? Visit us at Clint Davis Counseling and Integrative Wellness on Facebook and Instagram. If you want to meet our staff or book a speaker, go to clintdaviscounseling.com. Thanks for listening and be sure to subscribe today. Okay, asking why um, episode 27 is going to be a little different today. So I'm going to do um, kind of just a lecture series. I'm, I'm talking right now at the YMCA here in Shreveport, and we're talking about prevention for sexual abuse and sexual neglect for children. And so um, the YMCA asked me to come in and do this these talks, and I'm just super passionate about figuring out how to help kids, help parents, help families um, reduce their risk and their trauma for the future. So over the last, I don't know, 10 years of doing therapy with people, um, I just constantly have, um, I'm helping people recover from sexual addiction, from sexual trauma, working with uh, purchase, not for sale and human trafficking and, and working with people who, um, have been abused and who have been sexually neglected. And which is what I'll talk about a little bit, what that is later. Um, <clears throat> but I just get tired of helping. I mean, I love helping people recover, but, As I've been doing this work, I'm trying to figure out the prevention mechanism in which to make this better so that this next 10 years um, we can have a a healthier group of people, a a more supported group of parents and family, and and for the church especially. And so my goal for this is to just put this information out there. Um, It comes under um, a program called For the One, which if you're on YouTube, I'm going to put the slides up. So if you want to go check this out on our YouTube page, it's asking why on YouTube. And so um, you can look through the slides or you can just listen to this audio on iTunes or Spotify or whatever you're listening to it on. Um, so for the one is a community initiative by Glenn Davis counseling and integrative wellness, where we want to educate the church, educate the community on just all things, mental health. So anxiety, depression, PTSD, trauma, uh, marriage, families, parenting, we do a bunch of seminars all the time on these things, and we love doing – that's all the preventative work. We want to prevent, educate, support, come alongside. We kind of see what we do as discipleship, that um, that we're trying to make disciples as we do what we do. Um, that's our, our mission um, is to help people be able to be healthier and, and obviously grow close, closer to Jesus. But the idea for the one comes out of Ephesians where um, Jesus tells us that, you know, the she- – the, the um the shepherd leaves the 99 and goes for the one and so um i feel like i'm a, i'm a one that christ left the church for and came after in my darkest times um in my own addiction in my own depression and anxiety and ptsd and family history trauma and all that stuff and so um it's not enough for us to be rescued though it's for us to be rescued so that we can go rescue others and so if we as the church don't understand how to um, number one, our own sin and our own brokenness and our own mental health issues, um, and we don't recover from that, then how can we go out and rescue those that are still stuck in, in darkness and in bondage? And so 
the, that's part of what we want to do today. And so we're going to talk through this is this talk is for parents um, of children zero to six, and um, and you'll understand kind of why we need to do it because um, this is the age in which we can still prevent it. Um, so we're going to get going. Um, so for those of you who don't know me, I'm an ordained minister. I'm also an army veteran. Um, went to Afghanistan, 9-11, Hurricane Katrina. I'm a trauma and addiction therapist, but I'm also a husband and a father. So I have a six-year-old and a three-year-old, two little boys, and I'm in the midst of having these conversations and doing these things and dealing with our family and our peers and, and all the things that zero to six-year-old parents deal with. We're currently right there doing it. And so um, this is really close to my heart, but also a daily conversation. And then I'm also a sexual trauma survivor. I had a lot of sexual neglect in my past and, and trauma that happened that affected the way um, that I deal with myself, my sexuality, my view of sexuality, my health and my unhealth. And so, you know, I've been in therapy for 12 years working on that. Um, it's what pushed me to become a CSAT, a certified sex addiction therapist, and to work with other people. So, um I have a bachelor's degree in psychology, a master's in marriage and family therapy um, for Fuller Theological Seminary. I'm trained in EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing for trauma. I'm a clinically certified trauma professional. Um, and then, like I said earlier, I'm a certified sex addiction therapist. I'm also the director of recovery for the Hub Urban Ministry that helps uh, in poverty and victims of human trafficking. Um, so that's kind of my background. So a few caveats before we get started. Uh, you have to do what's best for your family in these situations. So everybody's family is different. I'm not here to tell people exactly what to do, but to give a general overview. The most important thing is to be authentic uh, with your kids and your, you know, your family. You want to do what's best for you and your personality because they kind of read that really well. So, um, you know, again, just you have to do what's best for you. And then this is a general conversation to start conversations. So hopefully this information today um, gives you some practical things of what to do, but it also just starts a conversation and within community that we can, you can take this and you can tell your pastor or your congregation member or your business or your whoever, um, or your counseling practice or your school, hey, this was really helpful and we, we need to bring them in and, and talk through this and, and, you know, give it context in our area and our place and we, and we can easily do that. Um, so if you want more details, please call a therapist, uh, Clint Davis Counseling, or in your area that's trained in trauma and addiction um, or sexual health, and they can you know specifically walk through those specific things with you. Uh, you can email in if you have questions, and, and we'd love to help you. And then lastly, you know this talk can be very triggering. So if you're listening to this podcast and, and it's overwhelming, you know stop, pause it. That's a great thing about podcasts is you can pause it and take a breath and get some water and, and walk around because it can be very triggering to our own shame and our fear. Um, so just take some breaks as you need it, because uh, this is a heavy topic, but I hope, and the feedback that I've gotten is that throughout it, there's hope and there's um, practical guide in what to do. So why, why are we in trouble? Um, I think we're in, a, in big trouble. I, I think that we don't realize the problem that's coming because it's so new in society, um, and we're, we're just now a decade into it seeing the consequences. So as we sit right now, it's 2021, um, and the statistics are staggering, and they're just getting worse. One of the problems for our zero to six year old kids is that they live among an overly traumatized and over sexualized group of adults and teenagers that are right above them. And so they are not in a world where they are safe or that the people around them and above them are healthy. And they are immersed in a culture that is hypersexual, 
um, from videos to movies to books to screens. Um, it's so accessible, and so they're in a lot more danger than they used to be. Um, they also are unprepared for context of what they're walking into. So, you know, I always use the analogy of walking your kid down the street and teaching them how to walk um, across the street. So you you go outside and you say, hey, you know, you need to hold my hand. You need to look both ways. You know, we need to cross the street together. You know, there are cars. There are people that travel. There are bikes. You need to look out for that because if not, you're going to get hurt. And we live in a culture, generation after generation, where kids, children, families are not prepared for sexuality in the context of the world. And so they go to a, a birthday party or a sleepover or a camp out or a situation where they're unsupervised with their children. And someone asks them to do something or tries to show them something and they have zero context. So it's like they don't even know there are cars coming and they walk right out in the street because we haven't taught them the context, the the way to be to be safe. Um, and a lot of that, we'll talk about why that is in a little bit. Um, and parents don't know the red flags. We, well, first, they don't know the risk. I mean, part of doing this talk is in these talks uh, around the state and around the country, hopefully, is that, you know, we need to know what the risks are. Some of us don't even know that it's a problem. Um, we know it's a problem. When I talk about it, I get email after email after email. Yeah, this happened to me. Yes, this has happened with our kids. Yes, this has happened at our church, but we didn't know what to do. And we didn't know if it, we thought it was just us. And a lot of times people feel very isolated and alone because they think it's just them because none of us are talking about it. And so then we need to know what are the red flags um, that we're missing right? What are the things that are important to look for? And then the last kind of major trouble is that the public education system, we're immersing them in very adult and teen lifestyles earlier and earlier. So there are fifth graders with phones, there are fifth graders with social media. And so our zero to six year olds, they need prep, they need to be prepared in some ways um, for that. And, And also, you know, if you're listening to this, and you're you have a seven or eight or nine year old, you can adapt this to them, because maybe you missed this window early on. Um, and you need to pick that up. So, um, for me, the stat, the sad part for me is that the, what I see is that the the stats in the church and uh, within other religions and the world are the exact same, uh, when it comes to sexual abuse, when it comes to sexual neglect, when it comes to trauma, it it crosses all socioeconomic statuses and cultures and ethnicities. And so, you know, I always say there's not a lot of middle upper white class people, let's say, um, smoking crack, right? So there's not a lot of upper class people, middle upper class African Americans, middle upper class Caucasians, middle upper class Asian Americans that are smoking crack because it's a it it tends to be something that lower income families do. It's not an ethnicity issue, it's not a race issue, it's a income issue, it's a cultural issue. But with sexuality, sexual addiction, sexual abuse it crosses all of those barriers that you're going to see people from all cultures, all societies, all um, financial situations dealing with sexual addiction, dealing with pornography addiction, dealing with sexual abuse, inappropriate touching, inappropriate boundaries. Um, and we've seen that. One of the big movements in the last couple of years has been the Me Too movement. And although I don't, I'm not on board with everything from those movements, of course, um, some of it's come out is that you know there's a lot of problematic behaviors going on in the world for women especially, that are just not being talked about. And we need to shift the culture and understanding of these things so that we can prevent them in the future. So there's a scripture that comes to mind when we talk about being different. And um, 
It's in Matthew. It says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it, but small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only few find it. And so there's this conversation that I try to have with people, because people come in and they say, you know, Clint, I want a normal marriage, or I want a normal kid, or I want a normal, and I'm like, you know, no, you don't. And what I mean by that is normal is not healthy, right? We want healthy marriages. We want healthy families. We want healthy parenting. We want healthy lifestyles, not normal, because unfortunately now normal is very unhealthy. Normal is in debt. Normal is anxious. Normal is depressed. Normal is obese. Normal is addicted. And that's what's the norm. And so as Christians, Jesus is saying, listen, the norm is wide. There's going to be people walking on that road and doing that all the time. Um, but narrow is healthy. Narrow is the, the few that are healthy, that are doing the right thing, that are doing the healthy thing. And it's hard, and especially in American society, because we, we want to be like everybody else. We want to fit in. We don't want to be weird. We don't want to be extra. We don't want to you know, be seen as the people who are making it difficult for everybody else. And so we tend to fall into these things and do what's quote unquote normal, what everybody does. You know, I've had moms who've been in my office and talking about their sons struggling with pornography and they're like, well, it's normal. All boys do it. And it's like, sure, statistically, it is very normal. Most boys, and we know, and I'll say this in a little while, that 90% of teens by the time they're 18 have viewed pornography. So it is normal, but it's not healthy. And it's certainly not healthy at the level that it is now with the access um, with smartphones and technology. So we have to get our heads out of the sand, right, and stop hiding from the truth. I mean, it's it's very uncomfortable stuff to talk about. And I laugh and say, I don't want to be the guy talking about this stuff to your kids and talking about this stuff to you. And it is uncomfortable even for me, and I talk about it all the time. But the reality is is that it's real and it's happening. And, and it's it's not if but when if we don't do something about it. So let's talk about parenting in general for just a second. Um, you know, the idea of parenting is a new concept. Um, it really didn't come around until the 1950s, this idea of the word parenting. Uh, James Dobson and a couple other people kind of came up with this idea of parenting in the word. And we didn't really look at child psychology at all until then. And so we didn't really look at how adults affect children and how they and they come out um, in the culture and, and there's these outcomes. And so then enters the industrial revolution and all of a sudden we start looking at kids as little factories that like, if I do this, then they turn out this way. And that's a reflection of my parenting and who I am. And unfortunately that, you know, also is balanced with this shift in individualized culture versus community. And so now we have this very heavy, you know, like a plus B equals C and shame based view of parenting and also a very narcissistic view of parenting. So what I mean by that is, we are everything that our kid is is a reflection of us and that's problematic because man our kids are little humans that make mistakes and we can be perfect and we're still going to mess up they're still going to mess up and it's not always a reflection of us yes we need to assess and look at our lives and go okay am i doing the right thing am i parenting well but in general we have a culture where if a kid is tired and crying in, in Target, then parents can look at them and go, well, what's that mom not doing or what's that dad not doing? And and now it's all a reflection of us. And so I say this all because, you know, it we don't we don't handle the sexuality conversation well because somehow it's our fault or somehow it's our shame or our issues and our fear. And we we get that misplaced. And so we avoid the situation and we need to be handling it, tackling it directly. 
The other problem, the last problem with parenting is that since the 80s and 90s, we have had a huge shift in the 24-hour news cycle telling us what to be afraid of. And I know from working in trafficking that your kid getting scooped up by somebody at Target is very, 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 very unlikely. But we're terrified of that idea. I mean, myself, I know that rationally, and I know that from my own life experience. And still, if, if Grady or Jude get around the corner in Target for two seconds, and my heart drops, I get anxious, I start running around trying to find him, and, I, and you know, I'm like, hey, you need to be where I can see you. But the reality is, is that that's not what is the problem. That's not what the greatest risk is. The greatest risk is what we're talking about today, which is um, sexual abuse and sexual pornography, pornography viewing and, and these things that are going to change the way um, – your kid functions and the, their identity forever. So the last thing I'll say about your kid is, you know, to understand zero to five, zero to six year olds, they're, they're all right brain growth. They're all very emotional. I mean, we know this, if we're parents, they, they want to eat chalk. They want to run in the street. They're, they're not very rational beings. And uh, so they don't know a lot about right from wrong. I mean, that you teach them right from wrong and you give them structure, but they're not making moral judgments um, or good and evil judgments at three years old. They're trying to figure out the world, figure out, you know, who's safe and who's not. And of course they have zero impulse control. So all that's important because they can't regulate themselves and, and really moving into six, seven, eight, nine, ten, they're still figuring out autonomy, figuring out their brain, figuring out how to function, and they need us to help them regulate. They cannot make adult decisions with you know a, a child brain. And so they need a few things. They need boundaries, they need structure, they need to know what they're gonna get and what they're not going to get. They need to know consistency with those boundaries. They need attachment. They need us to spend time with them, to connect with them, to look at them and love on them. They need affirmation. They need to be told they're worthy and they're valuable. Um, they need to be told that they they can do it. That they're 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 gonna you know have your you're gonna have their back. That you're gonna support them. And then they need affection. They need hugs and kisses and love and uh, the appropriate uh, physical affection. So, one of the main things to move on to kind of our main point today is. Um, there's a study that's been around for about 40 years called the ACEs study and it's adverse childhood experiences scale. Um, and so it's things that children experience in their childhood that affect their long-term outcomes. And so it's things like physical abuse, emotional abuse, sexual abuse, uh, physical neglect, emotional neglect, and then household dysfunction, which is mental illness, incarcerations, mother treated violently, substance abuse, divorce, so these things that are experienced in childhood, we've realized after studying for 40 years that they affect how we function. They affect um, our behaviors and our physical and mental health. They affect our behaviors and our lack of physical activity, our, if we smoke, if we alcoholism, drug use, missed work. But they also affect our physical and mental health, like our severe obesity and diabetes and depression and suicide attempts and COPD and cancer. We know that these things from... Our, their childhood affect our childhoods affect how we are going to be successful in life. Um, one of the biggest things we 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 know through the marshmallow or the Oreo study is that when you when you put a kid in a room and you put a marshmallow in front of them and you say, "Listen, you can have two of these if you can wait ten minutes," that the kids who can't wait end up having uh, more problems in life than the kids who can defer their reward, who don't get that immediate gratification, who who can wait for the reward and hold off just a little bit. And the higher their people's ACEs scores are, the less likely they can do that. So if you've had physical abuse, emotional abuse, and a mental illness in the family, then your ACEs score is four, right? If you've had a physical abuse, if you've had emotional abuse, and then you've seen your mother treated violently, that's, that's four. Well, then if your parents divorced, that's a five. 
And then if they are substance abuse, that's a six. So it goes on from there. And the higher ACE score is, the more likely it is for you to have major problems in the future functioning. So the reason I'm talking about this is that one of the things that's not listed on the ACE score is what I call sexual neglect, um, sexual addiction and porn addiction. These are things that, you know, weren't uh, accessible to children in the 80s and 90s because no kids weren't getting addicted to these things because they didn't have the access to it. And we didn't have a term for sexual neglect because <clears throat> nobody was talking about it or educating anybody on it. And so I want to talk about the fact that, one, sexual abuse is not rare, right? So some of the statistics are pretty staggering, but one in three girls by the time they're 18 and one out of five boys are sexually abused. That's, that, that is a staggering statistic to me that if you're in a room full of 100 women, that 75 of them have been sexually abused by the time they're 18. This is something that should appall all of us and that we should be running all as churches, as, as researchers, as mental health professionals, as doctors to figure out how to prevent. <clears throat> and yet it's, it's very rare that we talk about it. 50% of sexual abusers commit their first offense before 18, right? So that means that our babysitters, our family members, our cousins, all of these people have been, you know, a large majority of them have been sexually abused, and then there are, they didn't get therapy, they haven't recovered because nobody's talking about it, and now they're the people keeping our zero to six-year-olds, our seven-year-olds, and we're not having any discussion or conversation about it. So we have to figure out um, a system in which we talk to our family members, our babysitters, and, and make, make some safety parameters around that if we know that to be the case. We can't pretend like it's not the case because it is. And then, unfortunately, like I talked about earlier, you know, we worry about stranger danger, which, you know, of course, teach our children the appropriate things to do around that. But 86% of, of abuse is committed by someone we know. So it's not necessarily random strangers. It's, it's the people that we're letting into our lives without knowing that we need to do something different. And false reports for sexual abuse are extremely, extremely rare. So what do we do about this? Because that's scary and that can be very overwhelming. So here are some tips to avoid sexual abuse in an increasing abusive culture. Because the thing about these tips that's amazing to me is it reduces the likelihood of your kid being sexually abused, some say by like 86 to 90 percent. Meaning that if you can do these few things in your in your family's life, that the likelihood of your kid being sexually abused and being one of those high statistics is very, very rare. And I'll tell you why in a second. So one, the first thing is body safety. That we need to teach our children body safety, that they, they can be in charge of their body, that they're responsible for their body, that no one else can touch them or do anything with them that they don't like, that they have a right to say no, that they have a right to not hug, to not kiss, to not touch anybody, even if it's a family member, if they don't want to. The second thing we do is we have to use the proper terms for our body parts. So all of us grow up, a lot of us grew up with tallywhacker, TT, or Nunu. You know, we use these terms for body parts that are not the correct terms like penis and vagina because we feel uncomfortable. And so we have to ask, why do we feel uncomfortable? Well, we feel uncomfortable because of all these things we're talking about today, that we don't talk about it, that we don't normalize it, that we've been abused or we've experienced something with shame or our parents made sexuality a negative thing. Um, the church has made some, it, it a negative thing, religion anyway. And so, you know, we don't use the right terms because saying penis or vagina is graphic or it's it's too much or so we we 
dumb it down for kids. But the reality is, is when they don't know the correct terms, then they get taken advantage of that. There's many cases in therapy where somebody called it something it wasn't correct term. And then it made the, the situation confusing. So let's say they call it a cookie and somebody says that uncle touched the cookies. Well, now there's somebody not paying attention and not seeing that that's, you know, actually their private parts that they're talking about, that that's their vagina, or that's their penis. And so that therapist doesn't understand or that mom or that dad doesn't understand or the child doesn't really know. And so it never gets reported. Another thing we want to do is avoid good touch and bad touch. You know, with sexual abuse survivors, many of them will tell you the shame they feel is that if they were raped or if they were sexually abused, that they were, there was physical sensation that felt good. And so when we watch porn, when we watch things, when we're abused, we can have a physical, a good feeling, but it's not a good touch. And so sometimes when we use good touch and bad cuts, it's, it's it touch, it's, it's confusing to the kid because they're like, well, I kind of liked it or I liked the attention, but they don't understand that it's a normal biological response, but not a emotional response that they like. Um, and then what I've been really trying to push for parents is, We've got to change the way we kind of talk about these things because we have to communicate to everyone around us that our children are not prey and that we are vigilant. And what I mean by that is that, and I'll, I'll go ahead and go there because one of the reasons we don't think about that is because it's really uncomfortable to put ourselves in the mind of a predator, of someone who is praying against our children and looking to sexually abuse them, whether that's another child who's been abused or whether that's an adult who has also probably been abused, but now has an adult brain and should know better. And the reality is that when they, when they approach a child, they don't just walk in and say, let me see your private parts. Let me see your penis. Let me do this. They wait and they, they try to groom them. They, they spend some time with them. They see how far they can push it. They talk about things in a certain way. And again, if, if your kid doesn't have that context, if they're not looking for it, if they have no understanding of what's good and what's bad, then they slowly get manipulated into a situation and then they wind up in it not knowing, again, that there's a car in the street that's going to run them over. And so they don't look both ways. They don't hold somebody's hand. They don't stay on the sidewalk. They go all the way to the street right off the bat, <clears throat> and the person knows this. And so the reason why this prevention is so important is that if you have a child who knows that their body's their own. They've practiced it a hundred times. You told them a hundred times. Your five, six-year-old knows the proper terms for their body parts. They know what people can do, and they know to say, you don't touch my penis. You don't touch my vagina. I'm going to tell an adult, and even if you threaten me, I'm going to be safe. Um, and a person comes up to them and tries to subtly do something strange, your kid's going to tell them no. They're going to say, no, we don't do that. No, you can't see that. No, you can't touch that. And what you have to remember is that someone trying to prey on your child does not want to get caught. They do not want to get caught. They're a manipulator. They're a hider. They're, they're secretive. So if your kid is protected, if they're not prey, right, if they're vigilant, if we're vigilant, then they could, this perpetrator goes somewhere else. And I hate that they go somewhere else. I wish all kids, all families knew this information, which is why we're talking about it. But the reality is, is that by doing this, you reduce the likelihood of it so significantly that it's going to happen. I don't want people to be terrified that everybody's sexually abusing everybody and everybody's at risk. But they are if they don't have these skills, if they don't have this awareness, if we as a family don't set this precedent in our, our children's lives. And even more and more today, that's more of a problem. All right? So I'd love everybody to go out and tell everybody, your teachers, your friends, your family, your babysitters, Hey man, Clint told me these things and here's what we're doing now. Here are our new rules. 
here's how we're handling these situations. Our kids know better. They know who can touch them and who they can't. I mean, when we have babysitters come over, you know, in the beginning it was awkward. Now it's just kind of run of the mill, but it's like, Hey, listen, here's, here's a printout. Here's our kids' body safety rules. You won't be taking their clothes off. You will not be doing these things. Um, so, uh, if you look on the YouTube video, we got the rules, but it's, you know, I'm the boss of my body. No one touches my private parts, but me, we keep our clothes on except when washing and there are no secrets. Right. And so if you hand this to a babysitter and even your parents, even the grandparents, they need to know that this is what your kid is aware of. This is what you talk about. You know, anybody in the family is going to be around your kids unsupervised, especially. And the likelihood of them doing something is plummets because they don't want to get caught. And again, I know that's hard to hear. I know that's disgusting for people to think about, but the statistics are the statistics and it just means we're not doing anything about it. So the next part, so you might want to take, you know, get some water, take a walk for, for that for a second, let that sit in. The next part um, is about sexual neglect. So sexual abuse, we do know a lot about. There's a lot of literature. There's a lot of podcasts. There's a lot of things about trauma and sexual abuse out there. And you can you can go find a bunch of those. I'll, I'll post some of those in this at the end. But the reality is, is that what's not talked about is, is this especially, uh, sexual neglect. So I define sexual neglect as the absence of conversations and prep for pornography, masturbation, safe and unsafe touch, sexual boundaries, safe sex, menstruation, or sexuality in general. Um, we just don't talk about these things with our kids, and so we don't prepare them uh, for these conversations. And obviously, the conversation with a three-year-old and a six-year-old and a nine-year-old and a twelve-year-old are all going to be different. They're all going to stagger and they're going to they're going to grow. But we have to be having those conversations. And so why don't we is because one is because of ignorance. We were not taught these things ourselves. Our parents didn't talk to these to us about them. And I'm not saying that our parents were neglectful intentionally, but the reality is if you don't know and you, because you live in a country where you don't feed your kids certain foods, but then they, their teeth fall out, it's still neglectful. Even if you didn't mean to, even if you didn't know, even if you didn't have the resources, the child still experiences neglect. They still know, well, wow, like my teeth fell out. That's a major consequence. And my parents didn't mean to, but I'm still hurting. And so it's the same way with sexual neglect. It's like we all feel as adults in this country. I hear it every week, eight, eight out of ten people that come in my office, and they don't even come in here for sexual things. They come in for anxiety or school or work or parenting or marriage. And, and we always get to unresolved sexual trauma, that something happened where they weren't prepared, and that shaped the way they view themselves and their life. And... The, the other thing we do is fear. We're afraid of doing the wrong things, man. Listen, I'm a parent. I get it. I, I don't want to do the wrong things. There's sometimes I remember when Grady was uh, really little and he was sick and we we're dealing with allergies and we we're trying to figure out sleeping and he wasn't sleeping and waking up. And I, I just remember being so frustrated because I had read 47 books on sleeping and all of them said different things. You know, it's like, don't put them in the bed, put them in the bed put them in the crib, never put them in the crib, put the crib in the bed with you. You know, I mean, it's just like, close your eyes. Don't close your eyes. Stand on one foot. And, and none of the, none of the podcasts and the, the books all came together. And, you know, so you're just so afraid of doing the wrong things. And so with this topic, it's like, well, I don't want to talk to my kid about that. I'll just let them get erections and I'll just let them masturbate and I'll just let them do these things. And I'll never talk about it because I don't want to say the wrong thing. Well, the problem is, is you, you cannot not communicate. You communicate something even when you don't talk. And so for many kids, when we don't talk about these things, what we communicate is we don't talk about them. And so if something does happen, 
then they don't come and tell you because you've already told them we don't talk about this, that this is not something that our family discusses. And so when the things happen and they don't have context, we go to the next one, which is shame. They feel shame. We feel shame from our own past. We don't want to talk about this because it makes us feel dirty and bad and broken. And, you know, it just perpetuates the cycle. We avoid because it's scary and uncomfortable. The goal of this, this podcast and this talk is that you feel equipped, that you can have these conversations and you know why you should have these conversations so that even though it's scary and uncomfortable, you know there's purpose, there's meaning in having them. It's so important. The other thing from a Christian perspective is generational sin, that we have passed down these views of sexuality, these views of family systems, and it's just perpetually happened. We, you know, we found porn in our dad's closet or we were sexually abused by somebody else. And then we passed that down, you know, generation after generation. And it affects the way our dopamine, it works, our serotonin works, our, our impulsivity, our addiction, propensity. All those things are affected by the brokenness in our family and, and from generation to generation, which we're trying to change, right? We're trying to change that cycle um, moving forward. And that's why we're, we're getting healthier. Um, the absence of healthy sexuality modeled in the home. I mean, 50% of us have divorced homes, so we didn't see two, two, a man and a woman being healthy together. Maybe we saw inappropriate sexuality, or maybe, excuse me, we saw a lack of that, a lack of, you know, parents kissing or showing affection in, a, in the correct way. And so we don't know what our boundaries are. We don't know what our expectations are. And, and then we get married and, you know, the other person has totally different response or, or view or boundaries when it comes to it, but yet we've never talked about it. We just think it's going to click and work, and, and rarely does it do that. Um, a lack of community, which is, man, the biggest thing I can do around this conversation is is for those of us with little kids, especially before puberty, under 10 in, in 2021, is to say we have got to build a community of people who get this, who agree with this, who are on board with this. Because unfortunately for the teenagers out there, if you're a teenage parent, listen to this, it's going to be way more about recovery and you know finding health and healing from the lack of this stuff um, than it is going to be prevention. You know, you're going to be doing a lot. I mean, you can still do prevention, but it's going to be a lot more recovery because if your kid's 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, and they've been watching pornography for four years or, you know, being on TikTok or being on Snapchat or being in text message groups, then their whole culture, their whole mentality about these things is is already kind of formed and solid. And so you're going to have to work backwards to kind of help recover. And I'm going to do another talk about that later, but this one's way more about prevention for little, little kids and, and younger parents than it is about what to do with the teenagers that are already fully immersed in this. Um, and then changes in culture, sexual freedom versus bondage. We have this whole movement for teenagers and adults where, you know, we we're saying, Hey, do what you want, have access to what you want, watch what you want. And yet, it's bondage for most people and they, they come as adults in my office and in our offices and, and, you know, all over the world saying, help me, please. I can't stop doing this. I can't stop cheating. I can't stop acting out. I hate it. I don't want to do it. And yet the world sometimes is like, well, no, it's freedom. You, you can do what you want to do. And it, as long as you're not hurting anybody else, it's like, well, you're hurting yourself. And people realize that and know that. And then lastly, advances in te- technology, the smartphone, the internet, we're giving kids access to the phone or letting them just sit in the living room thinking they know what they're doing and that they can watch whatever they want. And it's just a dis- distraction. It's destructive and um, it's not working. So this is really important because 
right? The sexual sin and brokenness in adults and teens is so unique. First um, Corinthians six eighteen says, "Flee from sexual immorality. All the sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body." And I think right now that's the in America at least, especially that is where Satan has a foothold and where there's spiritual warfare and where there's lies and brokenness that's happening, and we want to prevent that for so many of our kids moving forward. So let's talk about the what you're moving into. If you're saying, man, this is great, Clint, or, you know, well, my kid's only six, five. They're not really dealing with a lot of that. Well, the problem is that very rapidly in the next four years, they're going to be dealing with all of it because the average viewing of pornography in our country right now is somewhere between six and eight years old. So if you have a six-year-old and they have that, and this isn't that your six-year-old is like, oh, I'm going to go online and go on Pornhub today and look it up. It's that they have access to your phone and their friends' phones and their friends have access to their phones. And, and so they're accidentally viewing very graphic, hardcore things that no kid has ever been able to see before the last 10 years. Another problem is that less than 17% of parents have rules for devices, meaning that a large majority of parents don't know what their kids are watching, let their kids take their iPads, let their kids take their laptops to their rooms. They let them play on Xbox and PlayStation and, and, and those have search bars and, you know, those can browsers that can look things up and the parents don't have any clue. And so you might be protecting your kid and think my kid's fine, but the kids around them and the kids they're growing up into the kids that will be their teenagers and their adults, um, are completely compromised. And so we know that exposure to adult media, it increases the likelihood of sexual abuse or inappropriate sexual play between children. So five-year-olds and six-year-olds and eight-year-olds, they don't try to act out sexually with each other unless they've seen something or had something due to them inappropriately because of how rare that, that situation is. Their biology doesn't, it doesn't make sense for them to look at another kid sexually that way at six years old. It may be a rare occasion that that happens, but it's extremely, extremely unlikely. What's more likely is that they've seen something on a movie or on a television show or uh, had something done to them, and they're just acting that out with another another kid. So if that's happened, a lot of times we used to use the language of like perpetrator, but I don't like that language. I think if they're a 12 and under and they haven't hit puberty and they're doing something sexual with another kid, yes, it's traumatizing and awful, but they're just as much of a victim most likely as the other kid. And so we need to figure out why, why are they doing that and what happened to them and what are they being exposed to that's putting this in their head that biologically shouldn't be there yet because they ha don't have the parts. They don't have the, the, um, the biology, the puberty to, to have that going on. The other important thing to, to think about uh, with porn is that it's not just two people having sex. So in the 80s and 90s, maybe that's what you're thinking. Like, oh, man, it's just a guy with a mustache, porn stash, and, you know, two people making out and having sex. And there's a little bit of a narration, and that's it. Well, that used to be what it was, and that's bad enough. I mean, those things have messed all of us as adults up, especially as men. Um, I can speak for us that currently we got a lot of problems with that because of what we've watched. And what I'm trying to bring to light is that that was 80s and 90s. That's when you could barely access it. It might have been a magazine, and it was generic. But today, pornography is abusive. 87% of it is extreme violence towards women. And so if your child is being exposed to something, they're not being exposed to vanilla pornography, which is bad enough. 
they're being exposed to things that are horrific. And, and I won't go into detail graphically on that today, but you can just look up, um, you know, violence and pornography in the statistics and you will know what those things are. One of the, a great website is culturereframed.com and they have a lot of good resources and it's graphic, but I think you need to understand what it is that your kids might accidentally watch. And again, it's not just two people having sex, which is problematic enough. Um, and earlier I said 90% of children have viewed porn by 18, which means today 90% of children by 18 have watched extreme violence and been aroused by it, which is the other connection is that it's not only just that they're getting early arousal templates formed, it's that they're now pairing violence and sexuality together, and that is making for an extreme host of issues in our teenagers and our young adults. Um, and then in our culture, 40% of adults say porn is morally acceptable. And I think part of that's because they don't understand what pornography is and why it's problematic. And lastly about porn, the porn industry makes more than the NBA, the NHL and the NFL combined. So this is a huge billion dollar industry in 2018, 33.5 billion visits were made to Pornhub in one year, 33.5 billion visits to this website. One third of all web downloads are porn related and 50% of parents underestimate how much their child is exposed. The internet and screen safety is, is coming soon to you as a parent. So you're moving into this age where we still have a chance to change the culture where we don't let our kids access the internet. We don't let our kids have screens. We don't let our kids have social media. Um, but the, the people around us are, le are letting that happen. And it's number four on the top 10 health concerns from doctors um, ranking ahead of school violence. There's 100,000 websites that offer illegal child pornography online. One out of four minors receives a sexual solicitation via the internet, and only 25% of them tell a parent. 79% of unwanted porn view occurs in the home, which we talked about earlier. And then lastly, and probably one of the most staggering for me, is 60% of kids have received an email or instant message from a stranger, an adult, and 50% of them respond to that message. So for the first time in history, we can have another adult that we don't know talking to our ch child while they're next to us on the couch and we don't know it. Influencing our child, communicating with them, sharing pictures with them, images with them, and we have no clue if we're, if we're, number one, allowing them to have the device, and number two, not monitoring it appropriately. And so again, you might be saying, I have a six-year-old, we got this. Well, unfortunately, the rest of the parents around you don't. And if you don't build a community of people who are fighting this fight, this war, this battle, um, we're going to lose. So we talked about this earlier, you know, an increased risk of abuse and sexuality, um, lack of support and education, new dangers that weren't available to us when we were kids. And so to talk about that really quick, we have this problem too with what, what, I, what we call an age gap. So in our society, We've always said things like, well, these kids don't know any better, or our parents don't know, or you don't know what it's like to be a teenager. And, and partly that's true. But nowadays, we look back on the 80s and 90s and the 70s with rose-colored glasses. We, we look at movies like The Sandlot and The Goonies, and we think those were the good old days. You know, we, I used to ride my bike and, until the, the lights came on, and my parents didn't know where I was. And, and I'm like, as a clinician, that's a pro that was a problem. I mean, that was fun. And yes, there's some freedom in that. And there were a lot of good things. But there were a lot of bad things happening on those bike rides and on those campouts and on those sleepovers. A lot more bad things than I think were good things. And I'm seeing that in the adults 
now that I'm treating clinically and that my therapists are treating clinically that they, we talk about it like it was great, but then in private we talk about it and, and the realities of what people went through in those situations. And so that was the 80s and 90s, and it was bad enough. But today with the cell phone, with the Internet, with the hypersexuality, the margin for error is so small. And so the risk that we could take as parents back then are not the risk that we can take now. And I think we're terrified to send our kid to Target. We're terrified to let our kid take appropriate risks, right, to walk down the street to a neighbor's house, to, to go into a store by themselves and fear that they're going to be murdered or picked up or whatever. But we're perfectly fine with letting them sleep over with other kids without knowing what they've been exposed to. We're perfectly fine with letting them play on a screen without supervision. We're perfectly fine with having access to the Internet without any kind of device or any kind of like, you know, viewing of seeing what they're actually doing and accountability. And so this is a major problem and a shift that we need to have. And so part of that is this age gap where I'm an analog to digital convert. You know, I, I used to you know, being in school and math teachers would say, you're not going to have a calculator everywhere you go. And, you know, and we laugh when we hear that now because kids have never heard that joke. They've never heard that argument because they all have calculators and on their phones, they have maps on their phones. They have everything that we used to have to put in a backpack to carry is right in their fingertips. And we don't know that that's how it is. And so there's this age gap where my grandfather and my dad's social experience and mine were the same. I had to call my friends on the phone. My parents could listen in. I had to write notes. I might have known what two or three of my friends were doing on the weekends. And then when I left school, you know, it was fine. I didn't think about that. I knew what my neighbors were doing. That's it. But nowadays, in just the last decade, because of the phone, you're constantly aware of everything that everybody's doing. You're constantly immersed in these things. And it's just changed forever how we do things. And I think parents are still kind of living not knowing that that's how it is because they didn't have that experience when they grew up. So what are the major things that, that keep this going? Again, one is access, um, that we can look at it anytime we want to. We can have the access to people. We can have the access to adults. We can have the access to inappropriate material. It's affordable. It doesn't cost you anything. Um, and then there's no accountability. And so, we again, we know that screen time from a young age, it forms neuropathways and makes connect synapses that are not supposed to be connected. So there's these habits and hang-ups, and we wonder why kids are more ADHD and impulsive and more angry, and there's more conflict, and people can't t- communicate back and forth with each other on social media. It's because we've had 10 years of screen time and screen viewing for kids that they didn't need and shouldn't have. It's like opening, you know, when you open an app or when you get on a smartphone or when you watch a little clip on YouTube – it's like a hit of cocaine. You get so much dopamine and serotonin dumped in these large amounts, and a six and seven and eight year old cannot tolerate that because they want more and more and more of it. So then, yeah, of course, reading a book or playing outside for 15 minutes isn't giving them that same hit of dopamine, and so they go back to the screen. And we can't get them out of the house. We can't take their phones from them. I hear parents all the time, like, I can't get my kid to put the game down. And it's like, well, you know, that started somewhere. They didn't just think that they could do that until we taught them that it was okay. And so we've got to start taking some responsibility and setting some boundaries and changing the functioning of our household, the functioning of our our community, our friend groups, um, because if not, we're in major trouble. And so, you know, I want to talk about why, you know, again, why that is, is that the timeline for the smartphone has really changed everything. And, and you're going to have the choice here in the next three to five years on if you give your kid a phone or not. And so if we don't 
team up together with our friends. Like we're always having these conversations at birthday parties now and, and with our peers at church. And it's like, okay, we need, Hey guys, you know, we had a six and three year old went, let's all agree. We're not going to give our kids phones. Like, can we all agree on that? Because we, we have to change the system over the next decade where the weird kid or the strange family are the people with phones, with TikTok, with whatever crazy app that is ridiculous comes out in the next five to six years. We've got to change that culture to where we're like, listen, we're protecting our kids. Our kids are going to be doing, they're going to have fun. They're going to connect. They're going to play games together, but they're not going to have devices and unsupervised time and access to all the things because it's literally killing us. Um, Google and Android both say they don't let their families and their children use these devices. You know, we don't know how to use them ourselves. Um, it's basically like giving your kid the keys to the car at 13, letting them drink some, you know, alcohol, letting them get drunk and then letting them drive. You know, the wreck is bound to happen, but it's very, you know, unconscionable for us to give our kids phones without supervision, in my opinion. So we talked about kind of empowering, um, so, you know, ultimately what I'm trying to say in this podcast is that not talking to our kids, right, is not an option. We have to talk to them. We have to build a community of like-minded parents. There are so many books, and, and I'm going to leave this on here, um, and you can go back and look at it or you can write it down. But one of the best books, books to talk about pornography with your 0-6-year-old to six year old or even your, you know, 7-12, to 12, it's, called, it's called Good Pictures, Bad Pictures, Junior. Um, it walks you through what are good pictures, what are bad pictures, what do you do if you see something on a screen or in a magazine that you, makes you feel uncomfortable, what are your private parts, what are good about that, what are bad about that, you know, all these details that are very kid-friendly and very simple. Um, another book is called God Made All of All of You and um, and Girl and God Made Girls and Boys, and so it takes it. it they're you know used to our parents would say, well, there weren't books about this, but now like we have some really good resources um, to where you can read these books with your kids once a month, once every couple of weeks, and they start to build this foundation of understanding. So, you know, my sons have what we call the penis rules. So my mom came over a couple months ago and she came out of the bathroom laughing and I said, what's up? And she said, Grady kicked me out of the bathroom. And so we kind of laughed and she said, you know, he, he said, I can't see his penis. He had to peep. He had to TT. And, uh, and my mom's like, well, I was just doing my hair. And I'm like, yeah, but that, that you're a safe person. Right, he needs to know that he can ask people to leave and ask for privacy with anybody, not just somebody who he thinks is safe, but somebody who he doesn't suspect is safe. And so, you know, they know who can touch their penis all the time. We we have these conversations. If we have a friend over at the house before they even come over, I'm like, what are the penis rules? And you know, Grady is a little bit obviously a few more years older, but he'll be like, nobody touches my penis, nobody sees my private parts, I don't see theirs. And if something happens, like what happens? I'm like, I come and tell you, and I'm not going to get in trouble. You know. And, and that's a conversation we have a lot of times. And so we have to continue those conversations. We have to check in, you know, when our kids are back there playing, no closed doors, right? We have that rule in our house. Like you got to keep the door open. Even if you're playing a camp out game, I'm going to be sticking my head in every 10 minutes being like, what's up? How are y'all doing? You know, because they need to know that we're there, we're present, we're, we're around um, so that they feel safe and they feel like they are empowered to do what they need to do. Um, again, following up and checking in, you know, find out what your children's peers are watching and being exposed to. So you can't just like wing it and say, yeah, it's fine. When the parents are there, like, Hey guys, what do y'all watch? What do y'all let your kids watch? Like, you know, we have to gauge together as a community what's appropriate, what's not. 
Tell them about these books. Tell them about Common Sense Media. Tell them about the resources. And if they know what those things are, then you realize they're a safe person. If they don't know what those things are, we get to educate them and support them and say, hey, listen, this gets your kids safe and my kids safe, and then we can hang out, spend time together, and I don't have to worry that some terrible thing's going to happen because we just didn't know and didn't want to have an uncomfortable conversation. And that's part of letting our friends and our peers and our teachers know we're vigilant, that we know better, that our kids know better, and that reduces the likelihood of these things happening, I mean, a hundredfold, right? So we have to keep our personal boundaries, even if it costs us our friends, and even if we feel like weirdos, because trust me, I'm a therapist. I feel like a weirdo sometimes talking about these things. And people might say, well, that's because you're a therapist, Clint. It's like, maybe, but I see a lot of people every single day, thousands of people who are telling me these same stories. And the reason I'm doing these talks is because I've summarized a lot of like, okay, well, that you're telling me these terrible things happened. So now out of all these, you know, white people, black people, Asian people, you know, cross cultures, cross ethnicities, cross genders, we, I can look at, and we can look at the research and pull podcasts and resources and go, okay, well then how do we prevent it? If we know it's happening, we know how it happened. And then now we can look at how to prevent. And I'm not the only person in the world doing this, obviously, but this is something that I don't see often. And I feel like summarizing is super helpful for people. Um, so again, keep keep it up. Keep up the hard work of doing this, right? Of having these hard conversations. Um, we can, we got to limit their access. We got to increase the accountability. Um, so lastly, a lot of people ask me uh, conversations about homosexuality and trans issues because you know even my son is coming home at six and he's like, Daddy, can two boys be married or can two boys have a baby or can two boys? You know, we're starting these conversations and so. Um, you know, it's kind of like the masturbation conversation. You you don't have to have a full-blown what is masturbation conversation at five and six. But when you you got to start building these things and scaffolding these things for them so you can teach them what an erection is because little boys get that. Little girls um, might get dirt in their clitoris and they start rubbing and then they they find out it feels good and so they, they start doing that. And we have to talk about that. That doesn't mean it's a sexual conversation. It means it's a biological conversation. It means that we can have these these small conversations that as they get older, build so that they have some context. They're not just like, oh, I'm 14 and now you're talking to me about masturbation or I'm in puberty and now for the first time ever, dad's talking to me about an erection and masturbation. That's going to be really awkward and that's going to be really uncomfortable. But when it's in the context of everything that I'm talking about and saying, then we have a more robust conversation that builds over time. You know, it's kind of like the ABCs. Like we don't teach our our four-year-old the ABCs. We start teaching them at one when they can't even say the letters. And then all of a sudden at three, four, they start, you know, they're spouting out the whole ABCs. And you're like, man, that's awesome. You can tell your letters. You can tell your words. Well, if you didn't build that with that with sexuality and prevention, then, yeah, it's going to be really awkward. And also a bunch of things have already happened by the time you get there. So it's the same thing with like sexuality, homosexuality, and trans. And what I would say is, you know, you can take a stance however you want to on that, and I'm not going to take one today, but we need to teach our kids to love God and love others. You know, as Christians, we have to teach people that there are things that we don't agree with that other people do every single day, that there are going to be way more things as Christians that people do that we don't agree with or that we don't do than, than they do. And we have to teach them that we love them anyway. We love them for who they are, but we don't have to have their same values and we don't have to, that doesn't have to have anything to do with us and our identity, right? That our kids, even if it's a bully, even if it's a situation that's negative, that we view as negative or that we take a moral stance on, 
that we need to teach them to love and to let you know, that's their life and they can they have that right in America to do that they have that right um, to make those choices and it's not our job to go over there and tell them that that's not their right or that's not what they they want unless we're in loving relationships with them unless they've asked us into their life to have conversations and asked our opinion in a very safe way then it's not really our job to be pushing our agenda. So when our kids come home and say, hey, what do you think about this? We teach them that. Hey, that's not about you. That's about them. That's your friend. You love them. You support them. Um, and as you get older, you'll figure out how to have those conversations in a, in a more robust way. I mean, most of us as adults still have a hard time having those. So we can explain that, you know, you know, explain it in that detail so we don't shy away from it or make it taboo because then – it just makes it super uncomfortable and our kids can say things and, and do things that are harmful. And we want to, we want to teach them to be loving and to be patient and to be open. Um, we can tell them our own private views of that, you know, and we can tell them our own situation and our beliefs biblically and our stances, whether it's homosexuality or trans or pornography or whatever, you take whatever stance you want on it. Um, like I said in the beginning, this is your, your view, but in the reality, if we teach them hate, if we teach them, to make things difficult or to, or to teach them to go and tell people that's wrong or they shouldn't do it at this age. It's not actually loving people. Um, and it's, it's causing more conflict and confusion for our kids. So keep it simple, you know, keep it, you know, just like everything else at this age, zero to six, seven, eight, you know, keep it simple and then let it build as you get, as they get older and get smarter and they can have more nuanced conversation. So a few apps for protection to give you the actual information. So uh, Bark is a really good app, Net Nanny, Disney Circle, Google Wi-Fi, Family Time, Covenant Eyes. You can get apps for your home that, um, that are on your modem or that are on your phone and that you know shut people's devices off at a certain time, block Wi-Fi, block um, pornography, bo- block adult anything to where they can Google things on accident and nothing adult will come up. So you want to be protecting them with apps, with the technology, you know, fight the technology with the technology because um, you can do it and it's simple and cheap. Um, so here's some of my rules and just for moving forward, you know, obviously this is not right now, but, you know, no smartphones until ninth grade. There's a great movement called uh, wait till eight, I think, where people are saying you need to wait till eighth grade. I think you can wait till high school. Social media needs to be a thing that, you know, in my opinion, is not helpful for any of us to have a social media account mainly um, unless you're doing something like sharing the gospel, sharing encouragement, you know, sharing a powerful thing, empowering things. Um, But teenagers, they can't manage it. And so if they can't drive a car, they probably can't deal with social media. And then if they do have phones and apps and you don't listen to anything that I'm saying, please don't give them Snapchat, TikTok, WhatsApp, all these things that are untraceable that can, you know, they can hide the images because they are going to send nude photos. They are going to send inappropriate things back and forth if they have access. Um, No access to the Play Store or the App Store, meaning you can block all that on their phones to where they can't even get to something to download. No free roaming on YouTube or kids, YouTube kids that you can download the content or you better be sitting right there with them watching it or they can stumble onto some really bad stuff. Um, and some more books that I listed on here. You can check out the YouTube channel, but uh, Whole Brainchild by Dan Siegel, No Drama Discipline by Dan Siegel, Boundaries, um, I listed God Made All of Me, Good Pictures, Bad Pictures, uh, The TechWise Family, Always Turned On by Rob Weiss, um, and Raging Hormones by The Ballswicks. And then um, some books to talk to your kids about sexuality, to talk to your kids about where do babies come from? And again, not all books are perfect. I haven't found any that are what I love the most. So I pick and choose from the parts of them, but, um, listening to my body by Gabby Garcia, 
It's Not the Stork by Robbie Harris. Who Has What by Robbie Harris. What's the Big Secret, talking about sex with girls and boys by Dr. Lori and Mark Brown. Um, again, I know I said those fast, but you can go back and, and write them down. But these are great books to that scaffold this conversation, and you can pick and choose which parts you show as they get older. And again, life happens, and circumstances happen, and some kids can tolerate it easier than others. Some kids need a short version, and some kids are looking you right in the eye and wanting the details, and you have to know your kids and your family but if you do not talk about these things, if you do not prepare your kids, then they're going to wind up in a very bad situation as they get older with no context and no support, lots of shame. And so um, I hope these resources help. Uh, Common Sense Media is something that you can use for books and you can use for film. Or if you're going to watch a movie with your kid, you can pull up Common Sense Media and it literally will spell out in detail what words it says, what what sexuality is there, what consumerism is there what conversations are there, and then you can choose whether you want um, your kid to see those things. Uh, Protect Young Eyes is an app um, with a bunch of educational clips. Minnow is a great app for Christian families that has a lot of safe um, cartoons and shows that are encouraging and that are supportive, that are really well done, so it's not like really terrible, cheesy stuff. Um, My kids like it, and they won't watch anything that's not awesome. So, um, yeah, I hope this helps. So I know this is a quick run-through of a lot of information, I'm, ta- I'm doing these talks all over the place. And so if this is good information for you and helpful, um, please have me come, have us come as a, as a staff to your church, to your business, to your, um, to your organization, to your school. And let's talk about this stuff. Let's, it's so preventive. We can prevent it. It's so preventative. We can, we can do this in the next decade. We can change the way it, the, the fabric of our society is working when it comes to children in these areas Um, And if we don't do something now, it's going to be a major problem in the future. I want to leave you with this. You know, it, if we look at 2021 and we look at where we're at right now, if we look at all the trafficking, all the sexual exploitation, all the prostitution, all of the pornography, all of these issues that everybody's talking about how bad and terrible it is, they were all created by men and women who barely had access to these things, who barely saw pornography, who barely had access to other adults. And here, 30 years later, we've created this entire culture that is so depraved and so broken around sexuality and our image of sex and our images of ourselves and others that we're in the mess we're in. And if that's the case, and we're not doing anything about it, what are these 10 to 20-year-olds going to create in the next 10 to 15 years? What will society and the culture in the next 10 to 15 years look like if we don't fight this battle, if we don't start in our own homes, protecting and preparing our families, our friends, our kids from sexual neglect and sexual trauma. I'm terrified for what that's going to look like. I have a lot of hope that we can do something about it. You know, it's a scary, scary, scary situation, but the answers are very simple. You know, they're they're nuanced, but they're simple. We protect our kids. We have the right apps. We have the right conversations. We have the right community. And the likelihood is very, very low that they go through something terrible. If you're listening to this and you're saying, man, I did all that and this bad thing happened. Well, yeah, it's not a perfect solution. You know, it's not a perfect fix. We all can do the best that we can. And there are some really cruel, evil people in the world that are broken and hurting. And they they can hurt our kids. You know, we can't 100% protect everybody. But we can do a, a significantly more than we're doing. And I hope that this talk helps that. I hope that you can email in. Um, you can, you can call in, 
if you have help, if you need help, if you, if you need to talk through your own trauma as an adult, if you need to talk through your situation with your, your friend who came over and who told you about something, you know, there's plenty of, of support at our practice at, at a pra- practices around the country. And if you need a resource source for your area, look up CSATS international Institute of trauma and addiction professionals, find somebody. If you're not a Christian, you're a different, you know, denomination or, or a different religion. Um, you know, look for people in your, in your world and your culture that's, that's healthy in these areas. Um, because it's, this is so vital and it's not a religious issue, even though I, you know, look at it from that angle in this talk, because I am Christian. You don't, if you just take all that out, the reality of this situation is the same. The protection, the need is the same, no matter what, um, belief you have underneath that. So anyway, I hope this is helpful. Um, if you like this, please reach out and let me know. Let, let me know. I can come to your, your place and talk. Um, subscribe to the, the YouTube channel, please give us a review, um, on iTunes or Spotify or Podbooker or whatever. Um, so anyway, God bless you guys. Thank you so much for listening and I hope you have a good day.